out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is The C86 Show. I'm David Eastor. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the American musician, songwriter, guitarist, music producer, and the lead singer of the Steve Conti NYC band, but he's also played in a million other groups, including um, the New York Dolls, the Michael Munro band, also um, um, Company of Wolves, Crown Jewels, and has worked with, yes, hundreds of people. Anyway, look, this is going to be the interview. So after several minutes of casual chat, we got down to that very exciting subject that was the early formative years. Steve, it's over to you. Take it away. Uh, yeah, well, my mom's a jazz singer, or she was, she's sort of retired now. She's, uh, she's getting up there, but, um, she still teaches, uh, voice and, uh, uh, but I pretty much grew up, uh, you know, she sang to me while I was in the womb. Yes. And, uh, so I've been hearing her voice and kind of her musical phrasing and, and, uh, you know, feel and style, you know, since before birth, obviously. And, um, and then, you know, throughout my childhood, she sang to me. And then when I was, when I was old enough, she actually put me in her band, you know? Yeah. Um, but did, uh, did you have to audition for that, by the way? Did she say, <laughs> not sure. well, yeah, it was, there was, there was a bit of a process because, uh, you know, in the early days we, we you know, me and my siblings, we heard whatever my parents played around the house you know, musically, which was big band stuff, jazz, uh, some classical, but mostly like Sinatra, Tony Bennett, uh, and then Ella Fitzgerald, Billie Holiday, Miles Davis, Charlie Parker, yes, uh, Cannibal Adderley, Wes Montgomery, did, you know, bebop you, stuff and jazz. Also, and, well, did she also like people like K-Star and Teresa Brewer and people like that who were... Not really, no. She, it, she was, they were, my mom and dad, like the only thing they had in common was a love of jazz. Right. And so, you know, they were like, growing up in the 50s, they were, I, I guess they were already um, older than the Beatles, you know, when they came up and, and they just weren't growing up in, in that kind of culture that loved rock and roll. Like they were, I don't know if they were throwbacks, you know, even back then, if, if they loved older music, but, uh, you know, in, in, I remember when Revolver came out in the mid sixties or late sixties, uh, 66, it was in fact, um, so, you know, my parents didn't have a clue what was going on with the Beatles. You know, they they were into they had Sergio Mendez in the Brazil '66. That's what we had going on in the house in, yeah. in 1966. Did they ever were they ever slipped into that world that was the Beatniks with people? You know, with not, that not, re, not I, I wish I wish I had to discover all that stuff for myself much later. <laughs> um, you know, they were into a, a specific like kind of cool swing thing like. Um, Louis Prima, Keely Smith, that kind of stuff. Sinatra, Tony, like I said. Um, so, you know, they weren't into, at least not then that I knew of, like, you know, drugs and partying and, and drinking too much. They were kind of uh, 
a bit on the conservative side. At least they kicked my ass for when I did stuff like that later. Yes. <laughs> um, but uh, so it was all very, um, you know, swinging and, and kind of, you know, much more complex than the simple pop music that I heard on the radio. Yes. And then, uh, and then my mom sort of eased into it a little. She got a Dylan record and then she got a Simon and Garfunkel record. And then we started asking for records that we would hear on the radio. We'd ask, well, I, that new single, you know, that new Small Faces or or the Hollies or the Who or the Beatles or whatever. And um, so we, my brother and I, uh, he's the bass player on the record on Bronx Cheer and, and through most of my bands in, in my life. Amazing bass player. Yeah. And uh, he and I just, you know, gravitated towards what we heard on the radio, which was you know, also the Monkees. And, you know, that was on TV at the time, too. And the, there's the Beatles cartoons. So we were very much into what, what was being shoved down the youth's throats, you know. Yeah. And um, and we loved it. And. And we kind of carried on that way until, uh, you know, it got to be, we kind of progressed through like the, the AM radio, what we had in the States was called AM radio. I know you guys had a different thing with BBC, you only had a couple of channels and you had pirate radio and all that. But we had pop radio from the get go. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, it was only later that I discovered FM radio, um, like when I became a teen. And that's where you could hear like the album cuts and the the deeper stuff. You know, they would just play the same pop hits over and over on on AM radio. So you know, once we got into and in, into our teens and and heard you know Led Zeppelin and Hendrix and stuff like that, and we just got more and more complex. And like all of a sudden, you know, we're listening to Yes and Genesis and and Jeff Beck and Mahavishnu Orchestra, and then we kind of went into jazz. And my mom would say, uh, you know, she took us out on some gigs with her. <laughs> but I remember at one point, uh, she like turned to me and she said, Steve, stop playing those country rock licks. <laughs> because it, because it's like, it was either a blues scale. I only knew like either a blues scale, you know, like uh, yeah. the most rock guitar players would play. Like uh, if I had a guitar handy, I would play it for you. But um, well, here I do, I do actually. Excellent. I don't know if you can hear that, but you know. we can. This is good. Right, that's a blue sky. But you know, I I realized if you played that down three frets, it, it became like major mm. instead of minor, right? So, so it went in doubt. You know, if I was playing like a very melodic song behind my mom and it was time to solo i would just go to the major key and i would play the same licks you know but uh in the major key and she would say it sounded country to her so <laughs> i was like i you know what i'm not gonna get very far gigging with my mom if if she's gonna like you know um interrupt my my yeah. playing on the bandstand every night so i said i better i better learn about this stuff so i kind of uh took a little crash course you know in in jazz and and well i actually studied it for quite a while um and i really got into it um and uh because you know i was sort of headed that way anyway i went from like beetle stones to like zeppelin and jeff beck and i was just getting more and more you know jumping more hurdles and and you know, climbing higher and just had a thirst for knowledge, you know, so by the time 
I got out of high school, I was like, I need to learn about jazz, you know, not just for the work that my mom was offering me, but also, you know, I just felt like, yeah, rock could be kind of dumb, you know, of course. <laughs> I love it, you know, and I always did, but I got, I got, I had a couple of years of like jazz snobbery, you know. Yes, well, it, we, we, we all go through moments of, we want to sort of put down Kind of Blue by Miles Davis and, you know, especially on the first date and feel very sophisticated and cool. So um, it does oh, happen, yes. doesn't it? But, <laughs> but did you, <laughs> was it New York or New Jersey? Were you? Uh, I was, uh, I'm from upstate New York. Like we, we I grew up in Buffalo way up yes. in the cold, you know, almost near Niagara Falls, Toronto, Canada. So how did you, I mean, were you sort of picking um, up on what the kind of the scene was like during that sort of the 60s? Was that sort of well, or the early 70s? Well, that's what, yeah, that's where I was for most of the, the my time in the, in the 60s when I was like old enough to be aware of, of radio, which was like, you know, mid 60s on. Yes. Um, and then in 69, my parents moved us to New Jersey, which was like at one hour outside of New York City. So we moved, you know, from like Buffalo is like eight hours from New York City. I mean, just just because it's New York, you know, yes. doesn't mean it's anywhere near, you know, the good part of the, of the state. I, I don't mean that. I mean, uh, the, the good for the music business is what I mean. Yes. Um, you know, Buffalo has some some fine folks, I'm sure. But I mean, I moved from there when I was nine years old. So I don't remember uh, a whole lot uh, about the people there, but um, you know, m most of my my music listening was, you know, uh, on young uh, AM radio was from up there. And then when I moved to New Jersey, uh, it got yeah, and I discovered FM radio and all that. It was um, you know, I realized there was. I, I needed to be in the city. I mean, when I got old enough to start thinking about a goal, like, you know, I want to, I want to take my songs because I started writing songs um, at a very young age. And by the time I was like 17 and 18 out of school, um, I wanted to like, you know, pack up and move to New York city because there was, I felt there was nothing for me in New Jersey. It was like uh, either Bruce Springsteen or, well, I mean, there wasn't even like a Bon Jovi or a Skid Row kind of like hair metal scene going on yet. Yes. Well, it was kind of... Um, so, you know, it was, it was just... It was that. interesting. And I, Sorry. Oh, it's okay. No, I would just read all these magazines. And all the magazines, you know, that I read came out of New York, you know, like uh, Rock Scene magazine. And, and you know, I mean, well, let's face it, New York was the, was a mecca for, for music in the in the 70s and... Well, it was, well, yes. But you obviously had that kind of curiosity not to just to think, okay, we're going to do, you know, everyone talks about the Nuggets compilations and, you know, the, you know, bands like the Sonics and Blue Cheer. And then obviously there was the kind of, um, yeah, Iggy's pop in the studios. But you, you obviously had quite a sophisticated taste because not many people from your world talk about Steve Howe and Yes and Genesis and... <laughs> You know, that's quite, they're quite complex. And I've done interviews with people like Steve Hackett from Genesis and Steve Hackett mm -hmm. from, um, Steve Hackett from Yes. And um, yeah, and some of those kind of guitarists. And it's like, okay, this is, this is, they're quite a different gig, aren't they? Because they've got a, a sort of a musical sophistication and, a, you know, an intrigue in sort of how music's, you know, where it's come from and incorporating lots of different other aspects of their role models, you know, so it's... Yeah. Yeah, and and I wouldn't, 
I wouldn't put myself on the level of those guys necessarily because, you know, the, the kind of music they do and create, I mean, you really, you have to be 100% into that. Like, I mean, I've always loved to write the three minute pop song and to sing my ass off, you know? So like I knew, you know, I always kind of like divided my time between the three different uh, um, passions of singing, guitar playing and songwriting. So I'm not like, super amazing at any one but i'm pretty damn good at all three yes. you know but uh you know i mean somebody like eddie van halen didn't write lyrics somebody like you know paul rogers can't play guitar some you know very well uh, i mean he plays rhythm fine i'm sure and you know then you got great songwriters like dylan who you know can't really play or sing <laughs> mind-blowingly well but you know he does it great for his songs and so, yes. you know, I feel like, oh, God, I've, you know, what have I done? <laughs> what was I thinking that I could do all three of these things? But, you know, I somehow managed, you, you do know, it. like like Eric Clapton or Jimi Hendrix or Mark Knopfler, you know, to be all three. But uh, certainly I'm not comparing myself to the genius of, of people like Jimi Hendrix. But um I do, yeah. I do know that people like, I don't know if you know the so, some of the solo work of Steve Hackett, but there's an amazing one he did called Spectral Mornings where his guitar just, it always kind of comes to this climax and it sort of dot drops and he sort of picks up the, you know, the vibe and the melody and it's just like, and I just wonder as a guitarist, when you hear things like that, you think, God, how does he do that? I must try and emulate that next time I'm, you know, twiddling around. So, um, uh, yes. Yeah, I haven't heard that, but... Uh... It's funny. I, I mean, one of the when I was a jazz in my jazz snobbery, I really only liked three rock bands at that time. This was like the early 80s. I liked The Police, The Pretenders and XTC. And uh, still, XTC remains uh, one of my favorite bands of all time. And uh, I, uh, I actually got to hang out with Andy Partridge a few years ago and we were in touch. And that's a thrill for me. Yes. Yeah, but uh, I've been listening to some interviews with Dave Gregory, who, you know, I never, I sort of always knew the weird, quirky guitar parts that Andy played. But Dave Gregory is such a monster guitar player. And, you know, he was talking about all the stuff he grew up into. And he was big into Steve Hackett and, and yes. And, and so he's like a prog. Uh, you know, almost jazz, almost classical. I mean, he arranges strings. You know, he's a guy that uh, is very musical, you know. Yes. And what about people and, like Richie Blackmore? Did they ever sort of come into your... Uh, yes, I loved Richie Blackmore. I mean, my guitar heroes at, at age 16 were Jimmy Page, Richie Blackmore, uh, probably Ace Freely, just because, you know, I was dating a girl who liked Kiss. <laughs> and I, and I, I was like, I, I got to get me some of that, you know. Yeah. So, uh, so I, I bought a Kiss album, um, uh, and uh, Joe Perry and Brad Whitford from Aerosmith. Um, so, like, you know, big rock bands, and and Blackmore was definitely one of the more complex, like the the solo on like Highway Star and that kind of stuff from Machine Head was like mind blowing. So yes, I, yeah. I, I worked some of that stuff out as a kid. But I know with David Bowie, he was he often said he always wanted his Jeff Beck, and he found Mick Ronson. So I know Jeff Beck's one of those other guitarists that everybody, you know, yeah, really high. Well, 
Yeah, it was like another year until I would come into Jeff Beck's, uh, you know, fall under his spell. And uh, I'd never left, really. I mean, he's my favorite guitarist of all time, really. Yeah. So how did you, I mean, because at this stage, you know, most, as you could imagine, most people who I've interviewed, you know, often say, yes, and then everything was good. And then suddenly punk came along and suddenly it all changed. But for you, your narrative is quite different, isn't it? Because... you know, that didn't, obviously your musical curiosity meant that you weren't going to go, right, that's it, I just need to, you know, become less talented. <laughs> yeah, well, well, thank you for saying that. I wasn't going to say it. But, uh, I mean, yeah, I, I come up against all kinds of attitude from from punk guys. Um, you know, I, I don't know if it's uh, that it's, threatening to be around someone who knows what they're doing uh, but I, I always get sort of like uh the cold shoulder from from certain punk guys like oh he's not a real punk or, or whatever I, I never claimed to be you know i mean when uh when even when van halen came out in in 1977 i was i feel like i was already fully formed i wasn't about to jump on that bandwagon mm. and start tapping my guitar with two two hands just like, you know, the same year when punk came out, I wasn't about to, you know, throw half the chords that I knew into the garbage can and just use three. Um, so, uh, you know, those things didn't affect me. Like they weren't trends that that I said, oh, I got to do this. I was already on my path. I mean, I liked some Van Halen stuff and, uh, and I did like some punk stuff that I heard. I loved Devo. Yes. And, uh, you know, back back then, um, and I didn't really get into the pistols, but like I said, the police and the pretenders, they all came out around the same time, 77, 78. Um, and they were very musical, those those bands. It wasn't like guys screaming that couldn't really sing. They had they had melodies that the lyrics were you know, thoughtful, and, and it wasn't just about anarchy and, you know, well, riots. Well, I think with and, the police, they were, they, you know, the three members, and obviously Andy, you know, on guitar, and you know, he'd been around since the 60s, because a lot of people who said he had been on that scene who I, I'd sort of met, you know, it's all, all that, you know, was on the London Carnaby Street kind of world. So he went, my God, I remember that guitar since 1979 when the police appeared. He thought, oh, I thought he just disappeared. But obviously, you know, he was a very good guitarist trying to look 10 years younger, wasn't he? But he was quite an old dude. He <laughs> but he pulled yeah, it. Yeah, I remember he was 36 when I first read about the police. And I was like 18. I went, oh, my God, he's so old. <laughs> <laughs> well, I remember. Blondie, now, now, yeah. now, now, 36 seems like a, a kid to me. Absolutely, yeah. I know. When I look back at my <laughs> love of David Bowie, thinking, "Oh, I thought he was, you know," and and yeah, certain people, you think, "My God, they were less. They were thirty-five, and I thought they had been anyway." But it is it is different when you get to those ages that you think, "My God, yes, we're, we're way past those years now, aren't we?" So when you were in New York, you know, and there was the CBGB's Club, and you know, Max's Kansas City, and the Mud Club. Eventually, did you were you sort of interested in and sort of going down to that? that world or were you still very much into the the blood sweat and tears period uh, well i didn't really get to well i didn't move to new york to live full time until uh the mid 80s right. so i missed a lot of, i missed a lot of that uh, for a lot of the 
the late 70s and early 80s when that stuff was happening, I opted to uh, go to school. So I was in college in, uh, in New Jersey and I would, I would take you know, trips in and see music and stuff, mostly jazz though. So I was going to see like John Schofield or uh, Mike Stern or, you know, like jazz guys, Pat Metheny, um, you know, people I could learn from. I, I didn't John, feel what like- What about John McLaughlin? Did you kind of- Yeah, never saw, I never got to see John live. Um, but yeah, I, I have every, almost every record. Mahavishnu, Shakti, his solo stuff. Uh, well, up to a certain point, then I, I just, I stopped buying jazz records probably, you know, shortly after I um, got out of school and sort of, you know, you never finish your education with that stuff. I mean, I'm still learning every day, but I mean, I just, uh, you know, there was five years there where I thought I'm going to be the next, you know, jazz, you know, white jazz guitar player who plays with a rock sound. But, yes. you know, uh, it was not uh, in the cards. <laughs> yeah, like I said, I, I like to sing, I like to play, and I, and I like to write my songs. So, uh, you know, I with, wasn't about to, I wasn't 80s. about to starve. You know, for twenty bucks a gig. You know? No, not living on the streets. Yeah. So look, in the eighties, there was three major players, weren't there? There was oh no, there's probably more actually. Um, but you know, there was Michael Jackson, there was Madonna, there was Prince, wasn't there? And and you sort of start to Love work them. with. Actually, though I would also say the Smiths and Morrissey, but you know that's just a quirky little thing that I had in the eighties. Um, yeah, but yes. Yeah, so, how did you start to work with Jill Jones from, from the the Purple Revolution, though just the Revolution? How did that come about? Well, I moved. So I moved to New York, and I, I started. I first played New York. I mean, I've been coming here since the early seventies because my. Uh, like I said, my parents moved to New Jersey and then they split up. Uh, pretty much my father, you know, drove us eight hours down from Buffalo, stuck us in a house and then split and moved into Manhattan. And uh, so we would go in and visit him. And um, he took me to some of my first shows at Madison Square Garden. I saw Chuck Berry when I was 13. And, and then, you know, throughout my youth, I would go in to see The Who and Zeppelin and, you know, whoever was, you know, so many amazing shows, Styx and UFO and Cheap Trick and Thin Lizzy and um, just whoever was in town, I, I saved my money up and went to see them, you know? Yeah. Um, so, but I didn't really start playing in New York until 84. And then I had a girlfriend at 85 and I, was in most of the time so I could like hang out in the clubs and kind of see what's going on. And I finally got a place in 86. And that's when, um, you know, I just started hanging out every night in, uh, you know, young, single, hanging out in, in clubs and going to jam sessions and, you know, trying to get my name out there and, you know, actually nothing ever came from it. I mean, I would go to like every jam. There'd be a Monday night jam and a Sunday night jam and a Tuesday night jam. And um, I met some people and, and, you know, some people I still see now and then, but never once that I know of did I get a gig directly from that. Yeah. But, um, but I joined other people's uh, projects and, um, 
you know, my goal was to move to New York and start my own band. And at the time, I was not looking to be the singer. I was looking to be the guitar player and to find a lead singer. And um, but in the meantime, I wasn't having any luck. So in the meantime, I just auditioned for people's bands and, uh, you know, joined their bands. And I remember I was playing with this one woman named uh, Francesca Begay, who had written a song for Joe Cocker. And um, oh, and she was working with Dan Hartman and Charlie Midnight. Right. You know those guys? They, they wrote yeah. for James Brown. They wrote Living in America and all that. And then I joined Charlie Midnight's band. And Dan came down and, you know, I'd known Dan from the Edgar Winter Group, uh, or I knew who he was, I mean, and his solo records, uh, I Can Dream About You and, uh, and that stuff. And Dan was impressed with my playing, and he's the one who recommended me to uh, Jill Jones, I guess. I don't yes. know, somehow he and the Prince camp were in touch, and uh, I remember getting the call, and... I went down and auditioned. It was like a cattle call because, you know, everybody in New York wanted to play with this girl from, from the revolution, you know? And uh, I got the gig. It was a, like a mixed band. It was, uh, let's see, it was probably, it was a big band. Keyboards, two guitars. It was me and another guy on guitar, a black guy on guitar and, and me. And then we had a, a black drummer and uh, Black backup singer named Angie Stone, by the way. Mm, Do you know who Angie yes. Stone is? I've come across Very that. famous, popular, uh, smooth, you know, modern R&B yes. singer. Very good singer. Um, she was a backup singer back then. Um, so it was a real mix. You know, it was like the revolution. You know, it was uh, like Prince said, black guys, white guys. Yes. And uh, it was the same kind of thing. We had females, males. It was just a mixed thing, and it was it was great. It was funky. It was rock, and um, we rehearsed every day for like six months. And then uh, we were supposed to open up for Prince on the Sign of the Times tour, and then he canceled the tour because the record wasn't doing good in America. And um, that was kind of the end of the band. We we did two gigs opening for Level Forty Two, if you remember them. Oh God, yes, the what does? Yeah, the, yes, and Mark yeah. Mark King, yeah, something about you. Yeah. And um, we did those two gigs, and then that was it. It was like, man, an entire year of my life with that excitement, you know. And and she would send rehearsal tapes to Prince or playing for him over the phone, and he would comment. He would say, oh, oh you got to fire this one. You got to get rid of that girl or whatever. And, and then she told me that he said, guitar play is cool. <laughs> so I was like, all right, I, I can relax. I'm not going to get the axe, you know? My God, yes, the tension but, must have been amazing. It's strange because yeah. Sign of the, Sign of the um, Times in this country was such a big album and it was just one of those kind of like, he'd really arrived by then because he'd done sort of various, I don't know, I don't know, was it Purple Rain and then, yeah, Parade. Parade, I think, was next, which, yeah. Which was quite good, but then he did, I went to see him on the Love Sexy tour and then there was a, another couple of times I saw him because they were such amazing shows but yeah it was um and then after uh, in the 90s I kind of couldn't cope with it anymore I had to say that's enough I've had enough prints but yeah the 80s and early 90s was an amazing period really so oh man yeah he was super genius creative you know I just I just did an article for uh Spin Magazine where they asked me like what five albums could I not live without and Sign of the Times is is in my top five of all time 
Yes, got it. Nice Beatles, Beatles, Revolver, Stones, Through the Past, Darkly, Prince, Sign of the Times, uh, Led Zeppelin II, and John Coltrane ballads. Oh, not Love Supreme. Those are my, not Love Supreme. I, I you know, it's a little and, too. And not, uh, and not Exile little, on Main Street. No. No, no, because the Through the Past Darkly is the greatest hits, but it's like, it's one, it, you know, it was like one of my formative, you know, it was the first Stones record I ever got when I was nine years old. Yes. Honky Tonk Woman had just come out. So it was kind of a, it was like some of the Beggar's Banquet. Yeah. Uh, it was it was pre-Let It Bleed, actually, because, uh, yeah, Honky Tonk Woman was on it, but uh, the stuff from... Beggar's Banquet, like Street Fighting Man and... Uh, 5,000 uh, Light Years from Home, wasn't it? And um, Yeah, yeah, some of that stuff from uh, Satanic Majesties was on. You know, it was like psychedelic and pop and blues. And it was just like the White Album. To me, I didn't see anything wrong with a band doing so many different kinds of music. And like Zeppelin with Physical Graffiti, you know? Yes. Um, I, there was absolutely nothing wrong with it to, to me, and it's plagued me my whole life because people have said, well, well what are you? You know, are you, are you an, a soul guy? Are you a rock and roll guy? Do you write ballads? And I'm like, what, do I have to pick one? Yes, I know. Well, it, it's, you know? It's, it's, it's too much. Yeah, no, actually, that was the first Stones album I got from the record library and recorded on my trusty T, TDK D90 cassette and was obsessed with it. It was just amazing. But then you mentioned Led Zeppelin. I got Led Zeppelin 4 and that game that had, you know, a huge amount of styles from, you know, folk mm -hmm. to rock, you know, that was, you know, and it obviously had Stay Away to Heaven, but it also had the duet with, you know, Sandy Denny, which was a great song. So um, the battle of... Oh, Ed yeah. So, uh, you know, yeah. it's a good one. So and, during that going, weird, weird and wonderful period that was the 80s, we had, you know, Margaret Thatcher, you had Ronald Reagan, there was the sort of the hair metal world had started in, in you know, America especially. And then in this country, we had that a lot of electro, you know, pop with people like, you know, I suppose a bit of time, yeah, Dire Straits, there was a production sound, wasn't there? T Tina Turner got it and Dire Straits got it and you know, Duran Duran and Spandau Bally. So it was kind of a mm -hmm. weird period. But as the 80s progressed, you know, there was that kind of sudden movement in this country. Ecstasy, you know, was quite a big thing. And then everybody wanted to make a dance record. And then there was the grunge scene that came in, you know, from Seattle. So how were you, you know, because being a punter, it's great. Being an artist, it must be like, great, thanks a lot. Everything's changing so rapidly. So I just wondered how you were kind of navigating after that experience with Jill Jones. Um, yeah, I, I've always been like one step out of time, you know, um, when, you know, when the, uh, hair metal thing happened, I was, uh, like the early eighties when Bon Jovi came out with like the, the synth, you know, I, I hated synths yes. you know? <laughs> and, uh, so when that kind of like rock guitar with synths came, I mean, I like the cars. Because they they, they kind of did it in a very melodic way. It was you know in a sort of a, almost Beatleish way in, in some cases. Um, but yeah, I well, and of course that's when I was getting into my jazz stuff. So I didn't really pay attention to what was going on in the in the punk and metal years. You know, I was like off in my own world. And then um, kind of when I came when I moved to New York City, it all the jazz was worked out of me and I just kind of went back to the basics. I went back to 
listening to my old Beatles records because I just wanted to write the best possible songs I could. So I was kind of studying the the form, you know, of, of songwriting. And, and I went back to listen to the blues and Muddy Waters and Little Walter. And, and I started a blues band. And so I just kept going further back instead of like trying to be on the trend. I knew I was just always one step behind a trend. So yeah. it's like you can either jump on the bandwagon and, and look like an asshole, which I know plenty of people that did it, you know, Seattle happened and the next thing you know, guys who had, you know, rock bands all of a sudden, you know, grew long beards and started wearing flannels and cutting their shorts, you know, their pants into long shorts and wearing combat boots. And and, more, like, and, and swigging Jack Daniels on stage and talking about their... Or, or doing, doing heroin, you know, and, uh, <laughs> you know, so that just looked ridiculous to me. And it was like so obvious that oh, you're just trying to jump on a, a bandwagon so you can get signed, you know, but that's not really what you do and who you are. So I just always stuck true to who I am in a way, um, you know, not that I'm not influenced by things myself but that's what i always say w w about my new record i know we're going to get to it eventually but yes um my uh we don't have to go there now but in <laughs> in general when i make records i just you know to me rock and roll is never going to be outdated but it already is outdated so it doesn't matter i just do what i like Yes. And it's rock and roll, and it could have been made in 1974 or 1994 or 2004. It doesn't matter. You know, it's just like it's guitar, bass, and drums. It's like organic, real, natural sounding. Um, so, I, you know, I, I never really... Uh, I, I played in bands, like, um, when I moved to New York for, uh, for money, because I've never had a job, really, uh, not since high school. Yes. Um, so like I played in people's synth pop bands, you know, and, and didn't enjoy it very much. But, you know, I was doing it to like, you know, make make 20 bucks, you know. Well, um, it, it always has to. So, uh, yes, I know. You've got, but you've got such an amazing kind of, you know, because you had two bands. You, you sort of got in the early 90s, Company of Walls, and then that went into, you know, the Crown Jewels. And then you were sort of working within within that was that did did you go into the new york dolls for that period or did you do your kind of this um with yoko is it yoko you worked with with the soundtrack? yoko kano yeah with the, uh, the the soundtrack the anime stuff yes um well the way the timeline of that is uh actually from the blues band i mentioned to you before that i started when i went back to simplifying my shit um I started this band called the Hudson River Rats, and we had a residency in New York every Wednesday night for like two years. And everybody came down and jammed with us, Cindy Lauper and Phoebe Snow and uh, Willie DeVille and Joe Hansen when he was Buster. And uh, word got out uh, and people were just clamoring to come down and play with the band. And that's where I met Keith Brewer, the singer for Company Wolves. Right. We met, we met he came up and sang. And we said, hey, man, let's write some songs. We got together, we wrote songs. Boom, like within the first week, we had written like six pretty amazing songs, you know, for, you know, two guys that really hadn't, we hadn't talked about anything. We just said, here's what I like. Oh, good, I like that too, you know? So we started the band. We got signed very shortly after, like within a year or two. 
And uh, that kind of burnt out after three years with the record company woes, as usually happens. You know, the president leaves and the new guy comes in and doesn't understand what you're doing, so he lets you go. Yes. And that's when my brother and I started Crown Jewels. And that was so Company Woes was 90 after the blues band. Then 92 was Crown Jewels. We kept that going until about 98, 99. Yeah. And that's when Yoko called to do um, the anime soundtrack. So I started doing those things. And um, and then we're into the 2000s. I started at that point i was like you know i said to my brother we've been we've been doing this a while let's let's take a break from each other so he went and played with roseanne cash i went and played with billy squire and then willie deville and paul simon and that's when i got the call from the dolls i was like in full sideman mode you know and i was just taking gigs with you know hopefully uh uh, well-known folks uh, instead of like you know the the twenty dollars synth pop bands. <laughs> yes, we, um, but before <laughs> the dolls, because actually, because because the album that I've been playing a lot is this one called Brain Powered, which is quite oh, that's that's once I did one song for that. Right, that was amazing. That's, yeah, I don't know the rest of the music. I only know the one song I did. Very synth, very weird synth. Right. And, and did you, yeah, so so with that co collaborative, well, it is a slight collaboration. How many albums have you done with her? Yoko? So that started out, first thing she did, uh, she tapped me for was for her solo album called Song to Fly. Yes. In, in uh, perfect uh, Japanese English. Um, um, that was 98. And she really loved what I did. And so she said, uh, I'm coming back, I'm doing a um, soundtrack to an anime. I didn't really know what anime was. I just, I had known Speed Racer from when I was a kid, you know? Yeah. It's about the only Japanese cartoon I knew. So I said, anime, sure, whatever. You know, <laughs> I was just, you know, I sing. Uh, if you want me to own session, I'm yours. So she came back. I mean, who knew it was ever gonna blow up to be the phenomenon that it turned out to be. But, uh, that was the first thing I did was uh, Cowboy Bebop, uh, Walk in the Rain, and then Call Me, Call Me, I sang with a 30-piece orchestra live. And uh, so she started to see that I could really, you know, perform in the studio well. And so she started hiring me for all these different things. I did the brain-powered thing, and I did Ghost in the Shell, and uh, Wolf's Rain, and then she flew me to Japan, and oh, I did Cowboy Bebop, the movie soundtrack. And then she flew me to Japan and I performed on a big concert for the release of the movie. And then I also did her uh, 2009 20-year anniversary show um, in Japan. She flew me over for that. So it was a nice... Uh, well, I have to say, that must have been a really nice kind of break from what you were doing normally to have somebody kind of lead in the project and you've been able to just say yes. Just give Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I, as much as I love you know, spearheading a, a project and being the guy who, you know, writes all the lyrics and all the music and produces. And uh, I do love to sometimes just get in the back seat and let someone else drive, you know, and and just uh, use my talents without, you know, having to use my brain to like think about, you know, all the logistics and the money and the marketing and all that crap. Just like 
pure music. You know? Yes. So then in, in the sort of O years, dear old Morrissey from the Smiths decides to put on a festival, doesn't he, in London. His meltdown and he wants the New York Dolls to reform, doesn't he? Is this when you get the call from the from the dolls to say, look, we need you, we need you in the band because we're lacking a guitarist? Something like that. Um, I guess, you know, Johansson had been asked for years to put the band back together. He's the only one that never wanted to do it, you know. Sylvain and and Arthur Killer Kane were, you know, they would have at the drop of a hat, you know, jumped on a friggin', you know, tricycle to ride yes. to New York to play in the New York Dolls again. Um, so uh, David, finally, for whatever reason, he relented. I, I don't know if it was because it was Morrissey or because maybe enough time had gone by or maybe he needed the money. I don't know. But uh, luckily he did. He did it when he did it because, you know, as you know, that was the only gig Arthur Kane ever managed yes. to do with the Dolls was the Royal Festival Hall, the two nights there. And then, um, yeah, and then he passed, sadly. But uh, David had, you know, it was one of those things like the same way Yoko got my name. You know, you you know, you asked what I, how I got started in town. You know, I said I went to those jam sessions and, you know, I got known for playing sessions and playing gigs and people just passed my name around. They, I got a, a decent reputation. So when David was talking about putting the dolls together, he put out a call to a bunch of guitar players he respected and guys that wouldn't be right for the dolls because they didn't have the vibe or whatever. They didn't look right. Yes. But uh, they, he asked them, who should I get for this band? And everybody said the same thing. Conti, Conti's the guy. He's got the right look. He's got the right guitars. He's got the right amps, you know, the right attitude. So David just called me up out of the blue. Well, actually, I knew he was going to call me because I was talking to the um, one of the guitar players that played in, in another project with him. He said, you know, David is looking for a guitar player for the New York Dolls. Uh, it's going to be a ref uh, reformation. And I said, oh, wow. I said, that would be, you know, really coincidental because <laughs> growing up, I grew up in the same town in New Jersey as the original Dolls drummer. Um, was that Jim? Billy, Mer Billy Mercia, oh, right. the first the first guy who died in London in the bathtub. Right. I don't know if you remember that story. No. When they first they first came over and they they were they weren't even signed yet. They were like the toast of the town in New York. They were like big, you know, they had this big uh, buzz going on, and they went over and they played and and uh, Billy Mercia, the drummer, um, I don't know, did too many downers, I guess, and. They put him in the bath and they tried to like give him coffee to revive him. I think he actually choked and drowned on coffee or something. Right. Oh, but uh, anyway, his brother and his brother and his family moved to my town, Matawan, New Jersey, when I was, you know, a kid. And and Billy's brother used to follow me. That he was like kind of an acid casualty. He would like follow me down the highway. Hey man, he's from Columbia. He'd go, hey man, you know who you look like. I'd be like, what? Who? What? You look like Johnny Thunders. He's like, who's Johnny Thunders? <laughs> He's a guitar player in the New York Dolls. You don't know them? I was like, no. So he brought all the records to my house and, and turned me on to like the Heartbreakers and the Criminals and the Doll stuff. And, you know, I honestly didn't think too much of it because this is when I was, you know, into Jeff Beck and 
yes. Hendrix and and Blackmore and you know getting into my prog phase, you know, because they were so quite I, they were quite sloppy, weren't they? In the you know, I yeah, know they were a sacred yes. cow, the the dolls, but but a lot of people, yes. you know, I remember JJ French from the twist from Twisted Sister saying they were just dreadful when you went to see them live. They weren't good. They were just, you know, they were just a mess, you know. So you must have But that was, yeah, but that was part of the attraction, I guess. You know, if, you, if you'd if never seen anything like it before, it's like a spectacle. You have to see it, you know, and who's going to fall off the stage and who's going to like almost OD and who's, you know, it was like a gamble <laughs> if they'd show up or, you know. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I learned quick on the gig you know, because I was coming from a place of like, you know, play well, you know, do your job, you know, don't bring a bunch of drama in, you know, and I mean, that's what those guys were. They were a ball of chaos and drama. And, you know, I mean, when I met them, they were, of course, they were older and uh, you know more dignified, but, um, you know, that's what they were back in the day. And I remember the first gig at Royal Festival Hall, we got off. We got off the stage because we had one rehearsal. We had a band. We had the we had the band in New York before uh, we before the band went to um, the Marcy gig. Yeah, we had our drummer Brian Delaney, who ended up you know being in the band for the six years, making the records with us. But Morrissey insisted that David use Gary Powell from the Libertines on drums. Right. So we re- so we rehearsed. Why I don't know. Uh, take take a guess. Um, we uh, rehearsed with Brian Delaney for, you know, a week to get these songs. Uh, no, what am I talking about? A week. The dolls hated to rehearse. We rehearsed twice. <laughs> <laughs> we rehearsed twice for, for a reunion concert after 35 years. That's all that they wanted to do was rehearse twice. So, you know, keep it shambolic, I guess. Yeah. And, so, uh, and so we got over there and, uh, you know, everything that we had rehearsed went out the window because now we have a new drummer who takes cues in a completely different way than our drummer did. And we got Sylvain cueing him in one direction. And we had this guy, Brian Coonan, who uh, Johansson was calling the professor. He was like his hot, 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 you know, Buster Poindexter musical director. Yeah. Uh, and he, we had him on piano and he was cueing like endings, you know, from one side of the stage. And Sylvain was cueing endings from another side of the stage. And, it was complete chaos. You can see it on the on the DVD. Sometimes the way the songs, you know, start or end, just completely fucked up. Um, so, uh, you know, after the show, we get off the stage and and David, you know, puts his arm around me as we're walking up. He goes, "So, what'd you think, Stevie?" And I went, "Wow, man, a lot of train wrecks." And he <laughs> says, "Hey, it's what they expect. It's the dolls. That's what people expect." And I was like, "Oh, okay, I get it now." You know, but before that, I was just trying to be good. You know, I was just trying to do my best and and play the parts the way they're supposed to be played. And, you know, yeah. and after that, I seriously loosened up and I just kind of went, you know, I'm, I'm thankful for that gig. It kind of reverted me back to my childhood, like what what I always found fun about rock and roll, which was just like, you know, not caring so much you know? I guess so so when you uh, just briefly I mean when you you know were you surprised when they said guess what we're going to make an album and you went oh my god I can't believe it this is this is both good for the bank balance possibly but yes I'm going to be working with you guys it's not just a couple of nights and um you know <laughs> yeah 
we're going to be together for five years. Yeah, well, it was uh, no one knew, you know. And in fact, if you read articles with Joe Hansen, he'll tell you he thought it was just going to be the one gig. But then, you know, people started calling and they started, you know, wanting they started wanting him. Yes. They started wanting the band to be, uh, uh, you know, on this festival and that festival in Japan and in Russia and in Australia and China. And so, you know, he would have been a fool to turn down the work. So we just kept it going. Even when after Arthur died, you know, we auditioned bass players. My brother did the first gig with Morrissey uh, in, at the soccer stadium in Manchester. And then uh, my brother was too busy, couldn't carry on. And uh, he was with Roseanne Cash. And that was more his thing anyway. Well, I have and to Sylvain say, yes, brought, I mean. They, they, so, Sylvain brought Sammy Yaffa in and Sammy was perfect because he loved the dolls anyway. You know, so, um, but it was kind of a logical progression, you know, like, what are you gonna, what are you gonna do? Just play the same two albums from 1973 and 74, like over and over again for how many years before like people get sick of it? So yeah, really had to, you really had to make a new album, you know, if you're gonna maintain uh, anything. And, and was the, what was the, what was the creative process like when you were sort of, both, you know, rehearsing and then going into the studio? Did, did you have it all sort of well, organized and like a well-oiled machine <laughs> no <laughs> so first you know um i hadn't tried to write songs like to target i, I really honestly never tried to write I, i'm correcting myself as i go along i did have a couple of like punky new wave sort of songs back in the early 80s but I had never tried to write like garagey you know blues you know street trash punk you know like the dolls before so it's just kind of trying to figure out what is that what is the essence of that thing you know it's got to be simple it's got to be trashy it's got you know so I kind of went through old tapes and I came up with some new ideas and I put like 20 things 20 ideas down on a CD and um I gave him to David and didn't hear anything for like two months. And I was like, all right, well, that's it. He hates everything. And I guess, you know, I'm not gonna write any songs with him. And uh, next time I saw him, he was like, oh, hey, by the way, Stevie, uh, I wrote lyrics to one of your tunes. And I was like, really? Which one? He's like, yeah, it's the one you were calling Starving for Love. It's now called Punishing World. I said, <laughs> so much better thank you yeah so he wrote these brilliant lyrics to uh to my song which you know it's, it was my melody chords arrangement you know he just plugged his words in and and it was uh it was awesome yeah and then he, he did the same for uh another song i had called rainbow store uh, actually he he wrote the some of that chorus as well and i had three or four songs that first album got to get yeah. away from tommy was another one that I brought in and uh, he wrote the lyrics to that. And then uh, take a good look at my good looks. We kind of came up with that at a rehearsal. Uh, oh no, we came up with that because Sylvain was jamming on that, that main riff. We were playing a Ronettes uh, song, Walking in the Rain, uh, during our sound checks a lot. Yeah. And um, after, after we finished the song, Sylvain would keep this riff going and 
it turned into a jam we would do. And we said, let's remember that, you know? And when we got in the, the studio, the rehearsal pre-production studio with Jack Douglas, who was gonna produce the record, Sylvain started playing it. And um, I don't remember if David had any, any lyrics for it, but um, I came up with that bridge, which I always thought reminded me of uh, an Al yeah. Green song or something. It was very R&B. Take me and, to the um, rhythm, yes. No, it was more like a, what is the one? Love and Happy, no. Uh, let's Stay Together. Yeah, yeah, it's like Let's Stay Together, yeah. So, um, yeah, so that was how it went for, for that one. We, we all, I think Sammy gave, gave David a bunch of things as well. And uh, one of his ended up on that We're All In Love, the one that starts the record off. Yeah. That was a Sammy tune. And uh, Brian Coonan, the keyboard player, brought in a bunch, but uh, they didn't really work out. And Sylvain, of course, brought in the, the majority of the stuff that went on the record. Just brilliant stuff, Dance Like a Monkey and Plenty of Music and uh, um, oh, I, don't, I can't name everything, Running Around, you know, just classic. And it was such a joy to record that record yeah. with Jack. And, and, you know, I mean, it's like it was an instant band. I mean, there's not too many bands, you know, being a, a guitar player from New York, how many bands can you think of where there would possibly ever be an opening slot for the guitar player and you could like step in really none kiss i mean what other rock bands are you know from new york city not really no no not really I'm, many that you could think of I'm and so most, most iconic as well which was quite yeah yeah, yeah yes. so you know it was it was very uh lucky right place right time and uh so it must you have know, been I, a good experience to say, hey, let's keep touring, do festivals, and also let's do another album. The next time, do it with Todd Rundgren. So that, so there must have been a, quite a nice spirit within the, the band itself. Yeah, yeah, there was. Um, you know, really felt like a band for a while there. Um, you know, we'd... Uh, spend a lot of time on, on our tour bus in both in the US and in Europe. I and mean, we went all over Germany, France, Italy, Spain. Um, we play Holland. I guess we played, we played Belgium. I don't know. Yeah, we did play Holland a, a bit. Um, and, you know, places I never thought I'd see, you know, Croatia and, and Australia and Russia and um, you know, uh, the whole uh, uh, east coast of Australia, Sydney, and and all that, and um, China, Beijing, yeah. Beijing Pop Festival. You know, um, so you know, by the time of the second album uh, that we did together, because um, I says so. Let's see, that was two thousand nine. That was actually towards the end of things. Were getting a little shaky just because when you when you put a band like that back together you know there's a certain window of time i think where people oh my god i thought i'd never see them now i you know i can see them and then after a while it's like all right saw them can check that off the list and <laughs> and you know uh, there were the diehards that would come back but you know there was uh the 
There was definitely, there was an uphill. I mean, we were climbing, climbing. Uh, I don't mean uphill. I mean, there was a, yes. you know, everything was, was elevating, you know, to a certain point and then it sort of plateaued and then it kind of started to come down just in like gigs and attendance. And, and I don't know if that was due to the management or the booking agent or, or if it was actually the, you know, people were losing interest or whatever, but um, you know, I'd expressed that, uh, you know, I just had a kid. I had my first son. So I said, Hey, you know, I really need to work, man. What's going on? Are we going to like get more gigs? And, and uh, you know, it was around the time of that second album that, um, you know, things were getting a little loose in the, uh, in the business end of the band. And so, uh, yeah, I had to take other gigs, you know, I couldn't like make a living as a New York doll only. No, it's always tricky. But then you're quite, you were quite lucky. You brought out a solo album, which was this international cover up, which has versions of, um, yes, Happy Working Class Hero, which is still an amazing song. And then you will also work with Michael Monroe as well, won't you? Which is. Yeah, that wasn't yet. So, so that uh, I put out uh, Steve Conti and the Crazy Truth in 2009, same year as the Because I Says So album. And. Um, that got signed to a universal uh, label. And, you know, I kind of did both, you know, touring with my band and touring with the dolls. And then as, uh, as things slowed down 2010, um, Sammy had, <clears throat> Sammy Yaffa, uh, who was original member of Hanoi Rocks with Michael Monroe, had started um, talking with Michael again in fact, I just saw the video when we played, the Dolls played Finland in 2008. And uh, Michael joined us on stage uh, for uh, Personality Crisis and played saxophone. And um, and Sammy and Michael started talking again. And I guess they were making plans to start a new project for Michael. And, um, you know, Sammy called and said, uh, hey, we need a guitar player. And I was like, well, I'm sure not working with the dolls. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll take a gig. So, uh, you know, I did both for a while. And then um, as it turned out, we <laughs> both bands got booked to make a new record on the same day. Like I had, I had finalized the, uh, we, we picked the producer, we picked Jack Douglas to make the, the first Monroe record that I was a part of, uh, Sensory Overdrive. Right. Um, we uh, arranged to do that in Los Angeles on September 10th, 2010. And um, as, as soon as that was like in the books, you know, like a week later, the phone rings and it's the dolls management. Hey, we're going to go make a new record. I went, Oh really? What, what are the songs? Oh yeah. David and still have all the songs. Don't worry about it. I was like, okay. So, um, when is it? He said, September 10th. <laughs> I, <was> like, <laughs> I can't man. And it's in England. I'm like, I'm in Los Angeles making a record. You know, I, I had to do it. You know, I, I need, I need money. So, uh, they, uh, got Frank Infante from Blondie to uh, fill in on the record. And then he didn't end up going on tour with the band. And I think the band only lasted another year maybe, and then imploded. 
Yes. But um, but that last uh, going back to the Dolls record, that 2009 because of record, it was uh, it was also a great experience in a weird way because we went to uh, Hawaii and recorded at Todd Rundgren's house. Now, I lived in Todd's house for like a month and a half and uh, which was an experience. I've been a, a Todd fan since I was a kid. So uh, yeah. that was, it was pretty wild, you know, hanging out with him every day. And um, it was all kinds of <laughs> little quirky things that happened there. Like uh, we got rained out of, we were going to record in his house, which was uh, one, basically you open his front door. It looks like a Japanese sort of pagoda, sort of like these really uh, crazy curly roofs and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, if you can picture what I'm talking about. And uh, you open the front door and the first thing you see is a mountain. Like you're looking straight through the house into the elements like it, his kitchen and living room are like open it's open air and then there are bedrooms on the sides that are that have doors on them but uh we were supposed to record in that room and i said todd where are we going to record he's like right here i said what happens if it rains he's like it never rains here <laughs> like, really it never rains in Kauai. i thought this was like the wettest place on earth and wouldn't you know we left all our equipment out there on the floor and that night we went to bed we got up in the morning everything was soaked so we had to go rent a uh, a little house and, and we just like recorded the album in a, in a little ranch house with like wall-to-wall carpet and low ceilings. <laughs> it's amazing that it sounds as good as it does. Blimey, he must have been embarrassed. He must have thought, <laughs> I shouldn't have told you that. Could have ruined millions. But yes, so that was because I said so. Yeah, but Todd was Todd is, you know, one of my favorite producers and uh, it was a pleasure to work with him. I would imagine it would be amazing. Yeah. So, with Michael Munro, does he is he based in Finland or in Europe? And um... yeah, yeah, he's in Finland. Um, he lived in New York for a time, which is why I wrote uh, "Ballad of the Lower East Side" for him. Um, but uh, I think he lived here for maybe ten years, like like late eighties through mid nineties. Right. Um. And uh, then he moved back, probably, yeah, mid-90s, he moved back to uh, Finland and, you know, put out solo records and reformed Hanoi Rocks. And then I guess that imploded and was looking for the next thing. And Sammy came along and said, hey, let's let's do a new thing. Yeah. And also but like so it's, it's a band, but it's called Michael Monroe, which is very confusing. Yes. So does it, um, because one of my favorite bands, um, well, I suppose the early 80s, was Motorhead. And Lemmy appears, doesn't he, on um, the first album you put you work with, Century. Yes. Oakwood. What was it like meeting the famous Lemmy, or did you not get to meet him? Oh, yeah. Uh, I've I met him a number of times. Um, in fact, when he came in the studio to sing, I'm trying to think if that was the first time I met him. Um, I think we had already been on tour with Motorhead. We toured we toured England with Motorhead in 2010, right. probably the summer of 2010, and then we went into the studio in the fall of 2010. We called Lemmy and he came in and and sang. 
and he was playing us. I remember he played us the whole new Motorhead record, whatever record came out at that time. And um, yeah. I remember the uh, <laughs> the song that he sang on was called. Michael had <laughs> written this chorus. It was called "Motorheaded for a Fall," right? <laughs> and uh, and Lemmy was like, "I can't sing that." And Michael was like, "Why not, man?" It's the name of my band, <laughs> so so we had to change it, and so he he changed it to like we're all headed for a fall, and and then Michael gave him songwriting credit on it, um, <laughs> but uh, maybe that was Lemmy's way of, of getting credit. I don't know, but uh, I I could see his point though. You know, it's kind of like, you know, a little word play on a at the expense of his band name you know and he, i guess he didn't want to sing his band name like that so yeah um absolutely. yeah so uh but that was a that was a great experience having him in and um we and also you, had and you also worked with lucinda williams so yes right? and lucinda williams came in and that was on my birthday i remember she came in and uh i actually uh had her number and and she came to the uh show that we had played at the viper room and then invited me back to her house, her and her husband, and I listened to her whole new album at that, whatever new album it was at that time. I think it was called Blessed, maybe. Um, and uh, she was just a real sweetheart. And and so I had her number. So I was like, hey, maybe we should call Lucinda. And uh, they were like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I called her and we got her to come in on my birthday, which was a thrill. And uh, she sang that song, Gone Baby Gone, with us. Yeah, and uh, yeah, so that was those were the guests on that record. It was Lemmy and Lucinda, and then and Ginger was in the band, Ginger Wildheart, and then he left shortly after, and then we got Dragon from the Backyard Babies. We've had like three different guitar players. Rich Jones is the current guitar player on stage, right? And uh, I think he'll be around for a while. He has been around <laughs> since two thousand thirteen, maybe or fourteen. Rich, did you say Rich? Rich, Rich Jones, yeah, yeah, and the Black Halos, yeah. So then, in sixteen two thousand sixteen, you you decide you're going to do a a, um, a solo album for a for a change, international cover up. When when did you get the idea for this? Well, that actually happened. Uh, two thousand and fourteen was my album, Steve Conti NYC. I don't know if that one uh, oh, escaped yes. you. Thunderdog but, Recordings. Was that? Was that on Thunderdog yeah, Recordings? Yeah, that's my label. Yeah. But um, same as International Cover Up. Um, I had done, remember Pledge Music? Yes, very well. So Pledge Music, this was like during the era when Pledge was like, wow, the crowdfunding, this new thing. You know, so I did uh, a Pledge um, campaign for the Steve County NYC record and um, it went quite well and a lot of those uh, a lot of those songs uh, I was living in Holland in the Netherlands at that time um, in fact when I joined Monroe one of the reasons why it was so attractive was um, I'd always wanted to live in Europe my wife is Dutch she wanted to go back to school and get her master's degree. And, um, you know, New York universities are crazy expensive and 
since she's Dutch, it's practically free. Mm -hmm. So I was like, okay, all the stars are aligning here. Let's live in Europe for a couple of years. I'm joining the Monroe band. We just made this record. Um, let's go do it, you know? So I was living over there and I had this Dutch band and we had toured England a bunch of times and France and Holland and Belgium. And um, we had no, you know, they just played the parts off of my American records. You know, they just studied what my American band did and, and that's how we played them. We didn't have any new songs, but I met this uh, one night I went to a club and my friends, the Spin Doctors were playing oh, yeah. and uh, they invited me on stage. I jumped up and jammed with them. And one of the guys, you know, recognized me from the dolls and he was like, one of the guys in the audience and he's like, Hey man, I own a studio here and I'd love to have you, you know, come in and, and do something. And I said, well, I have a band, but you know, we, we don't have any, I, they don't know any of my new songs. Um, I said, what if we just do blast out like our favorite covers from our live shows? Cause you know, we had been doing, I don't know, uh, maybe we've probably done three or four tours of England and we, every time, every tour we'd, mix it up and do two or three new uh, cover songs mm. that we do our own way. So uh, he said, yeah, sure. Um, so we went in and we just blasted out our live covers, you know, in one day. And uh, then I went back and I overdubbed vocals and stuff and maybe a couple of solos and trombones and whatever, <laughs> keyboards. But um, so that was like all during the time that I was living there and I was making the NYC record and um, and after I released the the NYC record um, I think part of the the deal with pledge was if some people um, pledged a certain amount they got to have the songs from that EP, EP I think it was just calling it international cover EP right right it was only like five songs um, and then, uh, after, after the NYC record had kind of done its thing, uh, I was like, Hey, well, I have this covers record here that I've never really properly released. Um, and you know, the thing about it is it's all my favorite, like rockers from the live shows that really, uh, added to the shows, you know? So I thought, you know, they're exciting. Let's, let's put them down and. And uh, I had f only five, which I realized if you have 30 minutes of music, you can call it an album, an LP. <laughs> but if it's right. uh, 29 minutes, it's only an EP. So I was like, okay, well, I, shit, I'm at like 20, 27 minutes or something. I was like a couple minutes shy of having enough for a, uh, to call it an album, right? So I went and I found my version of Working Class Hero, which I had recorded pretty much live for a radio program. And then I found uh, a recording of Play With Fire that I recorded on a radio program with Steve Lillywhite. He had a radio show here in New York, producer. Oh, right, yes. Yeah, and uh, he had a show called The Lillywhite Sessions. And I filled in for him one day, took, took over and DJed for him, and, and I played that song. And... Uh, he let me have that, and I took my other uh, uh, Lennon recording, and, and I slapped them on the with the five electric songs, and 
that became the album of international cover-up to really it wasn't like a planned thing like okay i'm gonna do a covers album and here's the songs we have to pick from no it was just like we did what we did and uh, it was just an, an accident really <laughs> well that's a happy accident so when you started to record the latest album was this before was this all set up before the the famous lockdown period yes yeah it was um in fact it was 2000 and uh well okay so after international cover-up i did a single Gimme Gimme Rockaway. Yes. I don't know if you know that one. That's... I did that on Little Steven uh, Van Zant's Wicked Cool Records label, right? And um, it was just a single. We recorded that with Clem Burke on drums and and uh, um, Smith's bass player. Um, Andy Rourke. Andy Rourke, yeah. Oh. Andy Rourke on bass and uh, Jesse Mallon, uh who's from New York too. And he was like hanging around the studio that day. I was like, Hey man, come and sing. And, uh, then I actually gave him a verse on the Mercedes Benz on the B side. And we did like a little duet. It was really fun. So, um, we did that for the little Steven label and around 2019, they called, they were like, Hey, uh, it's been a while, man. We, we need a new single from you. And I said, Oh, okay. I, Thought it was a one-shot deal, but okay, fine. Yeah, I'll do another single. And I said, but you know what? I'm ready to do an album, really. And they said, well, we're not sure if we're doing full albums. And I went, okay, well, you know what? I can't wait. I'll just do the album myself. So I did the album myself. I booked the studio. I had my brother on bass and Charlie Drayton, who's like the groove king from uh you know keith richards expensive winos b-52s yeah cult i mean he's played on so many great records so many hit records love shack you know divinals you know i touch myself <laughs> all that stuff so um you know him and my brother and me we went into the studio with uh, my friend andrew hollander who played some keys and co-produced with me and we cut the record and then uh, this was too, late 2019, September, fall 2019. Um, took the tracks from the studio in Brooklyn called Atomic Sound, great studio. Took it back to my place. I recorded a lot of the guitar, acoustic stuff, guitars and vocals at my house at home. And uh, loud guitars that I have a studio in Manhattan. I recorded some in there. And then by February, 2020 it was like we were the clock was running out it was like i gotta go uh, february 14th i remember because i always seem to leave on valentine's day for a tour much to my wife's chagrin yeah. um so i had uh, a a tour book with monroe we had to leave on valentine's day so we're finishing up the record at my co-producer's studio we got some friends come in and sing background with us willie nile i don't know if you know him james maddock yeah. They came in and they and they sang, and uh, we finished it just under the wire. Boom! And then I had to leave and go to Finland to go on tour with Monroe. So all the recording was done, the tracks were done. I brought the record with me on a hard drive, and I had my computer, and I was like doing whatever, cleaning up and editing and stuff. And then COVID, and uh, <laughs> you know, the next year. 
I spent, you know, just editing the thing by myself and sending it to the mixer who was uh, in California. Well, I, I spent lockdown in the Netherlands because it was hor horrendous in New York. Horrible, right. Really. Uh, you know, people were hoarding toilet paper, you know, it was like you go to a supermarket and the shelves were empty. I was like, man, we got to get out of here. So we went to Holland and we waited out the pandemic. We lived there half a year and uh, I would send the, send the tracks to the um, mixer who was in uh, Los Angeles. And we had about a nine hour time difference between us. So we'd have about an hour window when he was just getting up and I was just about to go to sleep and we'd jump on a call and we go, okay, let's talk about this song today. And, and we'd kind of go through the mixes together and, and we got it mixed. We got it done like that. And it's probably the fifth or sixth record I've mixed long distance like that, which is, you know, it's becoming commonplace nowadays, yeah. but um, uh, yeah. So we got it done before, uh, well, we got the recording done, luckily, all in the same room before uh, COVID hit. And then the rest was done, you know, the technical stuff. I got it mastered and everything in, in 2020. And and it came out in 2021. Blimey. Um, so are you yeah. able to do some live dates now? Is there a possibility of touring it? I've done one gig, and that is um, the record release uh, show. Um, it came out November 6th, I believe, 2021. Right. But I was also uh, booked to go over to Europe and, and do some dates with Monroe. So on October 28th, I did my one and only New York show for the record. And I had uh, a great band, um, a big band, a band I can't really afford to take out on, on tour with me. I had two female singers, uh, keyboards, bass, drums, and me. So, um, yeah, it was great. There's some existing footage on YouTube, but, um, yeah, you know, I've always been comfortable with the power trio. Yes. Um, you know, there's some fairly involved stuff on this record. Uh, I mean, maybe, you know, I've always rearranged songs for live anyway, as, many bands did i mean you know led zeppelin could never pull off what they did in, in the studio and live and the police and certainly the beatles couldn't no but um uh you know you just you do you do a facsimile reasonable facsimile of it you know and and you know if you're the singer and you're singing your song you know you could do it solo acoustic it wouldn't really matter but um so i'm probably going to go out and all this is to say that i'm probably going to go out and do some power trio versions of uh of, of the show of the of the record um mm. it really only matters for two of the the ballads that have like keyboards on it but you know i don't know how many ballads i'll be doing in a show anyway Yes. And you've one. done quite a few videos for this as well, including Recovery Doll. Is this with the director Tim Roth, who was a, uh, um, also an actor that I loved in the 80s? It's, it's a different Tim Roth. Oh. I wish it was that Tim Roth. But uh, <laughs> if it was that Tim Roth, he probably wouldn't have uh, done such a great video for me because he'd be too busy. Yes. Um, now, this Tim Roth... Um, 
is a uh, like you know technical uh, a video producer. You know, I, I'm not sure what else he does. Uh, he did a friend of mine's video for a, a song that I produced for my friend David Weiss, and uh, and I saw the video and I was like, hey, that's cool. I got you know. This is COVID time. I can't get together with any people in a room, you know, let, let alone a band. I can't even get together with a director. So maybe I can talk to this guy and, and figure out what we can do. And so I gave him, uh, I said, look, this is what the song is about. I'd like this kind of vibe. I'd like to see, you know, a hospital, like a dirty hospital, uh, a, a rocker chick. And, uh, you know, some some band footage somehow, if you can get it. And, um, you know, he did this whole thing with this virtual reality program. I guess maybe they use it for games. I, I don't know yeah. how he did it, but it's... Uh, have you seen the video? Yeah, I have. It's stunning. It's on yeah, it's, it's on YouTube. Uh, it's on my page video channel. And... Um, yeah, it's, it's sometimes I look at the girl, I can't believe she's not a real person. I mean, it's just, I think, you know, you can probably like build a face, you know, build, you know, these, I want these ears and these eyes and these nose and this mohawk haircut and this leather jacket. And, you know, he just built this perfect, like rocker girl. And uh, yeah, it was really Funny. amazing. I've never and done any, anything like it before. No, and also the album cover. Where does because it's very striking. Where does that come from? I was looking for photos of dirty old New York. I even joined all these Facebook groups like Dirty Old Seventies New York and uh, you know New York before nineteen ninety and all these. Um, I knew I wanted like black and white, and I wanted somewhat of a. Uh, yeah, just the old New York vibe. I mean, my favorite, you know, era, it's probably because, you know, it's when I first came to New York, you know, in the early 70s, when my parents split up and I would come visit my father in New York. It was the garbage strike and, and you know, 42nd Street was dirty, you know, porno theaters everywhere and hookers and pimps everywhere. And, you know, it's what we see in like, all the classic New York movies we love, Taxi Driver and French Connection and, you know, mean all those great classics, you know. Yes. Um, so I kind of wanted that kind of vibe. Um, and uh, I was looking through, I had a couple of, of photos that I really liked, but for some reason it didn't work out with the photographers. Like, either flaked out on me or they wanted too much money or I don't know what it was. So I, was, I just kept on looking and for some reason I ended up on a, on a site where I was looking at New York Magazine, which is a, yeah, maybe a little elite New York Magazine. Um, mm. And there was that picture of that kid. And I was like, oh shit. Look at this. This is amazing. And I read the description and it was like this kid was protesting with a bunch of his high school students and a bunch of other high schools. They were protesting the election of Donald Trump. <laughs> and I was like, 
This is so perfect. Uh, I'm I'm not a Trump fan, if you couldn't tell, but um, to say the least. Uh, so uh, that just made it all that, that more perfect for me. And um, I already had the, the title of the album. I already knew I wanted to call it Bronx Cheer. So I, I wanted something that kind of um, offset the title a little bit, you know? Yes, not, absolutely. Not a very cheerful looking cover. You know? <laughs> so, and, and anyway, a Bronx cheer is a, you know, a raspberry anyway. So, so I kind of like the thought of uh, giving Trump a raspberry. Yes. Or giving Trump a Trump, as you guys say. I just learned that recently that a Trump is a, actually a fart in England, isn't it? It can be, yes. It's, it's been a Do lot. Do you ever use that term? Not a lot. I wouldn't, no, I wouldn't. I think no. that you get all, I don't know what I'd use now. I don't know. We all try and, yes, we, with age, you think, no, that wasn't me, girl. Or you just feel embarrassed. Yes, no, I haven't heard the, the word Trump. It's far. Did you Trump? Excuse me. Yeah, so uh, I, I love that, that, uh, that that's where that photo is from. So, uh, and then I, you know, got in touch with the kid. Uh, he gave me his blessing to use the photo and uh, away we went. Nice one. So does that mean that you, you, you're sort of juggling quite a lot of different things for the, the rest of the year, you know, to get it going again? Uh, you know, I wish I could feel like that. <laughs> I feel like I'm in serious limbo right now. Like, I don't know what's happening. I mean, we had a bunch of gigs with Monroe uh, cancelled. We were going to do a, a cruise ship, which is just stupid floating petri dish you know out yeah. in the ocean um you know mask optional um rock boat no no thank you um and some other gigs that got canceled and it's like i haven't even put a band together yet for to tour on my album because i don't know if there's any point i mean will i be able to actually tour do i want to get a bunch of people together and rehearse, you know, safely. There's that whole worry, of course. I have children that aren't fully vaccinated, so, you know, I don't want to bring anything into my house. Yes. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's very, uh, very much in limbo right now. Um, we do have a, some dates with Monroe in Finland for the, for the spring, starting in March, but, you know, still up in the air whether it'll it'll go through but i'm really let's face it man two years it'll be two years on march 7th since i've been on tour you know i say in the past two years i've done one i've done one gig of my own probably about four or five gigs with robert gordon the rockabilly guy yes chris benning plays with i fill in for chris like uh, four gigs with him and maybe Two other just like money uh, gigs that were like, you know, kind of cover songs for private parties or whatever. So, um, but you know, the bulk of my yearly uh, income is, is touring and that is just has gone away for the past two years. So, you know, I've been trying to do like online uh, lessons and songwriting workshops, which I have one coming up in February. Um, where, you know, I break down 
iconic songs and we actually write songs with the group of, of uh, attendees, which has been really fun. Yeah. But, you know, stuff like that, stuff you can do online is, is how I've been uh, paying the bills, you know, and um, it's been a challenging two years, that's for sure. So um, juggling, not really, but I, I hope to juggle again very soon. <laughs> Christ. Yes, no, it sounds good, you know? actually. And, and, and that will look like, you know, me juggling like the past 10 years or 11 years that I've been with Monroe, with, um, you know, between his touring and my touring, because he tours places where I don't tour, and uh, which is like Scandinavia and some parts of Europe, and I tour where he doesn't tour, America. So... Yes, I don't know. Yes, it's it's quite grim. You know, it is a depressing state of affairs at the moment, isn't it? I don't know if um, yeah. Do, do you feel like New York's going to sort of bounce back and be the place it was, or is it has it changed to the point where you think I'm not sure? Um. Well, it's definitely changed. Um. I remember when we were in Holland for those six months of the first six months of the lockdown, just looking at reports and seeing like the restaurants that closed, like how many of my favorite restaurants just closed down, never to return, you know, like so a lot of the reasons that, you know, you move to New York uh, have been removed. You know, you can't go to, can't go to the opera. You can't go to the theater. You can't go to the the clubs. You can't go to restaurants. I mean, you can if you want to be one of these idiots that walk around without masks and unvaccinated. Well, I think there's a vaccination mandate, which is fine with me. I'm not one of those anti-science guys. Um, but, uh, you know, it's got me questioning, uh, do I really need to be in New York? I mean, I love New York. I love the energy. I, all my friends are here. My family's here. You know, my career for 30 something years has been here. Um, but man, there's just not a lot you can do in New York or anywhere, really. I mean, I guess if you live in Florida, you know, people don't really um, care too much about masks and it's mostly outdoor beach stuff anyway. It's that's fine. But, you know, here where the entertainment industry is, it's one of the hubs, you know, New York, LA, Nashville. Yes. Um, this is, uh, this is home and, and yeah, I, I don't know if it's going to bounce back. I mean, you know, already, you know, we've seen a lot of people just say, Hey, what do I need to go into an office for? And I'm going to work from home. I mean, this whole office culture has changed, you know, where people don't think they really need to do what they've done the past, you know, 50 years and office buildings or hundred yes. years, however long it's been. So blimey, it's a bit of a diner, isn't it? Yes. This is kind of Yeah, but you know what? I <laughs> I'm not down about it. I mean, I uh yeah, I mean I miss touring. I, I miss making a living. <laughs> but um I'm really okay by myself. Uh maybe it's it's shown me that I'm a, a bit of a misanthrope i don't know um like i'm really cool like hanging out by myself like i basically my job for the past two years has been driving my wife and kids to school every day mm -hmm. i'm a chauffeur um <laughs> so 
I drive him to school at seven in the morning. I'm up at six. I'm out the door at seven. I drive him to school. I'm back home by like 8.30. And then, you know, from like nine o'clock until like two, I have to work on my music and do emails and get caught up on all my business stuff. And I'm just alone in my studio and I am not lonely. I am like, it's a full life here, man. <laughs> I got guitars. I got tons of stuff. I'm never, ever bored. I'm never at, at uh, you know, there's never a lack of something to do. Yes. You know? it, sounds, it sounds good. It sounds like, you know, anyway, you know. <laughs> I mean, if it was just kind of just one thing, then you could have just said to your 16 or 18 year old self starting out, is there any kind of little word of advice or you know, word of wisdom that you'd have thought, oh, yeah, I would have just, I wish someone had said that or something that you've thought, yeah, that was, that's, that's something I've um, discovered through life. Um, yeah, I think about this often. I, I think, you know, I used to think I should have gone to New York right away after high school, you know, I sh you know, if I really wanted to, get into the New York rock scene, you know, instead of going to college and learning about music and, you know, but that was my path. And uh, I did what I did. And, you know, if I hadn't done that, maybe none of these things that happened for me would have happened because I wouldn't have had the musical education to be able to work with someone like Paul Simon or Willie DeVille or Blood, Sweat and Tears or whoever. Yeah. So, um, but, you know, it's stuff that no one can teach you. Like, I mean, I mean, I've even learned stuff, you know, as an adult, like within the last decade, like, you know, being in bands with people, you know, how far you can push it. You know, people might say, it's a band, this is a band. And then you think, oh, well, a band, what does that mean? It means we're all equal or, you know, we all can say what we feel, but it's not really true. <laughs> <laughs> you know um sometimes i i feel like uh you really need to like read the room and and read the situation and, and think about what do you want to get out of this scenario you know you can go in and be like i think this you know and if you're the only one that thinks that you're going to be the the asshole you know yes and and I've certainly been that plenty of times. I have a hard time shutting my mouth. I'm Mr. Honesty to a fault, you know? So, uh, you know, people can hate me, but I am true to myself, that's for sure. But I would have said to my 16 year old self, you know, hang back sometimes, you know, let other people talk. Don't put your foot in your mouth too soon <laughs> let someone else do it first <laughs> yes what was 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 there a particular period that you you changed do you feel was there you know was it was was it when you were in the you know new york dolls or was it with michael oh it's it's been like every band i've been in since i've been an adult you know there's there's always been a couple of little situations where I go, ouch, you know, I could have handled that better. I could have handled that better. I could have handled that better. Um, but, you know, the one thing I'll say for myself is 
I was never doing anything out of uh, like sneaky, like trying to rip anybody off, like anything dishonest. It was always like I was spilling my guts, saying what I felt, you know, and um, you know, maybe it made other people uncomfortable. Yes. But um, that's uh, live and learn. You know, <laughs> if you if you don't want to um be that guy you know think it through yes interesting i know i sort of bite my tongue so much nowadays it's unbelievable <laughs> <laughs> well i'm trying to do that more often <laughs> it's tricky i don't know it's um yes anyways and like you said read the room that's what i try and do more it does help doesn't it yeah you know, uh, I, even with, with emails, you know, I find myself like writing an email and then go, don't send it, save as a draft, you know, and then you come back the next day and you read it and go, oh, thank God I didn't send that. <laughs> you know, even just changing, you know, uh, a sentence to I feel instead of you did, you did this, you know what I mean? <laughs> and like less accusatory, even if the person did do that, you know. Yeah. I seem you to know, remember. It's like psychology, you know. It's it's like being a producer too. Like I'm producing a record right now for somebody, and you know, half of producing is psychology. I mean, I remember some of the first producers I worked with were terrible people as producers. They would they would just like intimidate you into like feeling like you had no talent, and that is not the way to be a producer. It's like you have to encourage people and you know coax good stuff out of them but if you're telling them like you basically you know without saying the words you suck but you know if you keep stopping the tape every time they they do something wrong nope no no i work with a producer like that you know and it's like totally blows your concentration your your ego everything you know so producing is is psychology and and i'm working on a record with someone now and you know you have to make people feel good and not lie to them of course but you know look at the the positive aspects and uh focus on those and you know the record i'm producing is going to be killer um it's for a a thing called leather cat suit it's a girl named kim olin her project um and it's rock and roll, but uh, it's got some really nice melodies and it's a killer pop tune. Like it's just all guitar based. Kind What's of her name? Kim Kim Olin, leather cat suit is what she calls her her band. She doesn't have anything out yet. This oh. is going to be her first thing. But um, check it out. Yeah. Could be amazing. I but know look, she has a page somewhere on 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 the internet, but um, I will I will go and check that out. I will check that out. But look, this has been Steve. This has been amazing. Um, if you want, I can when I do the the feature, I can um, send you a link, and then you could post it on your media channels that you'd use. But this, oh, please do, Dave. I'll um, I'll definitely put this up as well very soon in the next couple of weeks. So. It will be there and about. But yeah, again, thanks. I've loved it. And I've been listening to a lot of your solo stuff in the last week. And uh, yeah, it's been fascinating. It's been really interesting. So um, 
Yes. My pleasure. My pleasure. Uh, David, how do I say your last name? Eastaw? Yeah, Eastaw is the one. Yeah, that's the way. And and what's the name of your show again? The C86 show, which is, it's kind of, it was a cassette. Do you remember the new musical express? You know, any. Oh, yeah. Um, sure. They did a particular, they used to do these tapes and sort of seven inch singles, but they did a load of cassettes during the 70s and 90s. And um, it's named after one of those, the C86 show. So um, it's based on that really. But it's, yeah, I'm quite loose with it now. Like I said, I've, uh, as I mentioned, I've sort of done those interviews with people like Steve Howe and um, Steve Hackett. And also the guitarist who was in the, oh, I did an interview with Chris Spedding once, actually, well, last year. He's he's amazing. Oh, I love that guy, man. And I, I didn't realise he played on um, Harry Nilsson's I Can't Live, If Living Is Without You. He did? He did. I didn't realise he played on that. His, he, he, I know. I said, when you were recording these songs, did you realize they were going to be that amazing? He said, No, of course you don't. You just think, Oh, well, I'll just go and do this session. That's great. You know, and off you go. And uh, yes, <laughs> his, you know, he, again, you know, it's just like his, his discography and his uh, CVs. It's like, Oh my God, you've played on all these ones. I can't remember if he played on Al Stewart's Year of the Cat as well. I can't remember that. But I do remember. I don't know, but. He was McCartney, just, Elton John, Jack Bruce, John Cale, you know. Yeah, and uh, he was even a Womble for a while, wasn't he? he was in yes. The, it's uh, the great, because I had to, he loved to talk about the Wombles. And um, yeah, he, he, he sort of, I don't know, he, he just did so many. Yeah, so Joan Armatraden, he was with her on Me, Myself, I. Um, a lot of Brian Ferry. Mm-hmm. He's still with Brian Ferry. And I, I love his solo stuff, motorbike and all those records. Yeah, but yeah, it's Harry Nilsson, so cool. 1971. So there you go. You can listen to that and go, that's my man. Oh, yeah, and Elton John, Madman Across the Water. So yeah. Donovan. Yeah, so he was he was there. I just thought, you know, that is one hell of a song. Did you just go, wow. And he produced the first Sex Pistols. That's right. He said that. Spunk. Um, he, he, the he spunk was, thing, right? Yeah, yeah, he said that. Uh, I've, uh, I've still never heard that, but uh, I have to dig it up from somewhere. Well, it's going to be out there, but he's amazing. So anyway, look, there you go. Amazing character. But look, thanks a lot. And this has been amazing, but I'm going to go to bed now. Thank you, David. Yeah. I appreciate it. Yeah, um, it's late for you. <laughs> anyway, look, take care of yourself and all the best. And uh, hope it all goes well in the next year, too. Okay, if you stop the recording, I'll pop on and say goodbye to you. I've, I've, oh, no, wait a minute, wait a minute. I'll cancel. I'll, I'll hit. There you go. That was amusing, wasn't it? Anyway, look, that was me in conversation with Steve Conti talking about life, love, poetry and everything else. This has been the C86 Show. I'm David Easter. If you want to contact me for some nice reason, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 Show. Also, these have all been archived. You can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean. Check them out. They could just change your life or not. Anyway, have a great week. Stay safe.